This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's the month of October, just about my favorite month. October has the beginning of crisp weather, the turning of the leaves, and best of all, Halloween. Because Halloween is my favorite holiday, I've decided to create a series that brings in some elements of that day. Crime stories, of course, but also ghosts, hauntings, and creepy sightings. So the chapters this month will, in essence, give you two stories. In each, you will hear the story of a crime, and you will also hear about a haunting associated with the place the crime or crimes occurred. Whether you believe in ghosts and spirits or not, it's always fun to hear about a haunting, and I've found out about a few that have tie-ins to true-life crimes. The first step will be a story of a serial killer who went undetected for several years. The place he committed his crimes would later be considered one of the most haunted places in the Midwestern United States. Did people convince themselves it was haunted because they knew of all the horrible and grisly crimes that took place at that location? Or could it be that the many victims who lost their lives to a cold, calculating serial killer still haunt the grounds? Or, even more chillingly, is the killer himself the dark spirit that roams his former killing grounds? So sit back, perhaps light a fire or a candle, wrap yourself in a cozy blanket to keep the fall chill away, or to hide under if it gets too spooky. This is Chapter 1 of Haunted Homicide, the case of serial killer Herb Baumeister and the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. In the spring of 2009, Vicki and Robert Graves bought their dream home. The Tudor-style house was built in 1978 and sat on 18 and a half acres of rolling grounds surrounded by woods in the Westfield Carmel area of Indiana, located about 20 miles north of Indianapolis. The 9,300-square-foot home boasted four bedrooms, eight bathrooms, an indoor pool, wet bar, a five-car detached garage, and horse stables. Rob Graves worked in sales at a luxury car dealership in Indianapolis. Vicki, his wife of 27 years, worked as a scientist for Indiana University Health. They made a decent living, but ordinarily, the home named Fox Hollow Farm would have been out of reach for them financially. Let's be honest, if your house has a name, it's probably a pretty expensive property. But this home, the home they fell in love with and thought would be the perfect place to raise their two sons, had a past. The beginning asking price for the home was $2.4 million, but most everyone in the area knew of the home's reputation, and no one would touch it. The price was then reduced to $1.7 million, and three years after that, when it still stood empty, it was reduced again to $1.1 million. When the Graves finally inquired about purchasing the home, they decided to take a shot and make an offer, at a price they could afford. In the end, they were able to purchase it for the discounted price of $987,000. In the state of Indiana, the seller isn't required by law to disclose a past that would cause it to be called psychologically affected, a legal term that means an event occurred on the property that might give buyers pause, such as a death, a suicide, or even a murder. 
But if the buyer specifically asks if any of those events have occurred, the seller is legally obligated to disclose that information. The Graves weren't too concerned, even though they already knew the property's history. To be clear, everyone possibly in the entire state of Indiana knew the dark history of Fox Hollow Farm. To the Graves, however, the home's history simply meant that regular people like them would be able to purchase the beautiful and extravagant home. The Graves set out to fix up the property, which had begun to fall into disrepair. With many long hours and lots of elbow grease, they were soon able to move into the home with their two boys, five cats, and two basset hounds. Vicky was even able to fulfill a lifelong dream of owning horses. The boys enjoyed the indoor pool and the woods just outside their back door. The home, however, was costly to maintain. The grounds had to be kept up, and the graves spent their weekends mowing the expansive lawn and watering and weeding the plants. The house was enormous, and the heating bill alone could be upwards of $800 per month. To offset some of their costs, they decided to rent the property's fully equipped second-floor apartment to Joe LeBlanc. LeBlanc was a co-worker of Rob's at the car dealership. He was single, and the apartment was perfect for him and his dog, Fred. It was quiet, and the woods and grounds provided lots of space for Fred to enjoy. But then unexplained things began to happen at Fox Hollow Farm. Vicky was vacuuming one day in the pool room, and the vacuum kept cutting off. Turning around, she found the cord unplugged from the socket. She plugged it back in, but again, it stopped. Turning around once more, to her surprise, it was unplugged again. She hadn't pulled on it, that she knew. Then she felt a weird feeling, as if she was being watched. She looked around, but no one was there. In the apartment one evening, LeBlanc heard a knock at his door. Thinking it must be Rob Graves, he got up and opened the door, but no one was there. He was perplexed, but figured he was just hearing things and returned to his computer. The knocking came again. This time, he knew it was coming from his door, but again, when he opened it, no one was there. His dog, Fred, was also on alert, as if he felt a stranger's presence. LeBlanc searched all around the property, but found no one. One afternoon, Vicky observed a man wearing a red shirt walking just beyond the tree line where her back lawn ended and the woods began. But just as quickly as he appeared, he was gone. Not long afterwards, she saw the man again. But this time, as she looked to see where he was headed, she noticed something very odd. His top half, including his head and torso, which was clad in the red shirt again, were clearly visible. But his lower half was missing. He had no legs. He simply floated off into the woods. This time, Vicky shared what she saw with her husband. Soon, they were both convinced something paranormal was happening on the property. They called in experts to try and find out who or what was haunting Fox Hollow Farm. Fox Hollow Farm had a history, a very dark and grisly history, and most everyone in the Indianapolis area knew about it. What had occurred at Fox Hollow Farm wasn't discovered until June of 1996, over a dozen years before the graves became the owners, but over three years after, young men started disappearing from the streets of Indianapolis. At that time, the house known as Fox Hollow Farm 
had been owned by Herb and Julie Baumeister. Herbert Richard Baumeister, known as Herb by everyone, was born in 1947 to Dr. Herbert E. Baumeister, an anesthesiologist, and his wife Elizabeth. Herb was a middle child, having an older sister and two younger brothers. The family was affluent, and Herb was a gifted student, despite only receiving passing grades. He was quiet and somewhat reserved, but at times he would act oddly. Once he brought a dead crow to class that he'd found on the way to school, and when the teacher wasn't looking, dropped it on her desk. He had a few friends in high school, but never dated. His behavior must have become even more extreme because his father decided to send his son for a psychiatric evaluation. After testing and interviews with doctors, Herb was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but it appears that he did not receive ongoing treatment for this illness, if that was, in fact, what Herb was suffering with. After high school, Herb enrolled in Indiana University, but quit in his first semester. He then took a series of jobs provided by friends of his influential father. He worked as a copyboy at the Indianapolis Star newspaper office, but he didn't fit in with other employees. He was eager and seemed to want to be respected, but continued to exhibit odd behavior. Offering to drive some of his co-workers to the college football game at IU, he showed up in a hearse. He made quite a spectacle of himself, flashing its lights and racing through the town. His next job was as a clerk for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. His intelligence and drive earned him a promotion as program director, but his behavior and bizarre sense of humor once again got him into trouble. He would blow up in anger over the smallest things. He once sent a Christmas card to his co-workers that included a picture of himself and another man dressed in drag. They weren't sure what to make of it. Then, apparently as a prank, he urinated on his supervisor's desk. He didn't admit to it, but it was an open secret that Herb Baumeister was responsible. Still, he managed to keep his job. That is, until he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana. Baumeister had returned to college several times, enrolling in a few classes before once again dropping out. While attending classes in 1967, he met Julie Sater, and they began to date. Both Herb and Julie were young Republicans. Neither fit in with the more liberal groups of college students who wore their hair long and spent their weekends at parties. Both were conservative, almost a throwback to the more sedate youth of the 1950s. They married in 1971 and purchased a house in Indianapolis. Julie worked as a high school journalism teacher until they started their family in the late 1970s. After Herb was fired from his motor vehicles position, he took a series of odd jobs. He eventually found work at a thrift shop in the city and soon realized that such establishments had great economic potential. He and Julie had always aspired to become business owners, so after three years working at the store, he convinced his now-widowed mother to loan them money to open their own store. They rented a space on 46th Street in Indianapolis and in conjunction with a charity organization called the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, opened the Save-A-Lot thrift store. They sold used clothing and household furnishings collected by the charity, who received a percentage of the proceeds from the sales. The store was well-lit, organized, and clean, and families on a budget grew to prefer shopping there instead of the overpriced department stores. In its first year, the Save-A-Lot earned $50,000, 
and the Baumeisters opened a second store, and then a third. By now, Julie and Herb had three children, Marie, Eric, and Emily. The couple was doing very well financially, so in 1991, they decided to purchase a property away from the city to raise their children. They picked the affluent community of Westfield, and when they saw the property located at 1111 East 156th Street, Fox Hollow Farm, they thought it was just what they were looking for. Julie now spent most of her time at home raising the children, while Herb managed the stores. Julie also spent time at a house at Lake Wawasee, which was located 100 miles to the north and owned by Herb's mother. There, Julie and the children would spend school holidays, some weekends, and a large part of each summer, while Herb would stay in town to be close to the stores. Julie would say that Herb was a wonderful father. He spent all his free time with his children, playing with them, taking them on outings, or just hanging out together at home. They weren't the type to attend cocktail parties or take fancy vacations, but it was a good, quiet life that they lived, and their children thrived under all the attention their parents showered on them. There was one thing missing from the Baumeister marriage. Julie would admit that they'd never had much of a sex life. According to her, they'd only had sex six times in the 25 years they were married. This would definitely not be considered normal, but it wasn't a point of contention in their marriage, and not even something they discussed. The truth was, Herb wasn't interested in sex inside his marriage because he was spending the nights Julie and his children were away, seeking out companionship in Indianapolis's gay clubs. This was something no one knew about, not even his wife of 25 years. With his family out of town, he had plenty of time to meet men at bars or bring them home with him to Fox Hollow Farm. But this was not the end of the secrets Herb Baumeister kept. On May 28, 1993, Johnny Bayer, age 20, left his job at McDonald's in Indianapolis and simply vanished. In July, Jeff Jones, age 30, also went missing from that same city. The same month, 20-year-old Richard Hamilton left his apartment at 2 a.m. to purchase a pack of cigarettes and was never seen again. On August 7th, Ellen Livingston was seen leaving a downtown bar and getting into a white vehicle before disappearing. On that very same night, 31-year-old Manuel Resendez was out at a nightclub with friends. At the end of the evening, his friends couldn't find him. He had also vanished. All these men were gay and frequented bars and clubs that catered to the gay community in downtown Indianapolis. All were in their early 20s to early 30s, and all disappeared without a trace. Then in June of 1994, Ellen Brassard, 28, went out for the evening and didn't return home. The following day, his mother tried to report him missing, but was told that since he was an adult, the police would not take a missing persons report until he was gone for 24 hours. At that time, a local detective would be assigned the case, and if he had not been found after 30 days, it would only then be transferred to the Missing Persons Bureau for investigation. Broussard's mother, not wanting to wait to get help to find her son, decided to hire a private investigator. She called Virgil Vandegriff. Vandegriff was retired from the Marion County Sheriff's Department and had begun his private investigation firm in 1982. He discovered by interviewing witnesses that Brassard was last seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers. He questioned Alan's friends and people who'd seen him at the club that night, 
and posted information about the missing man around town. The next month, Vandegrift received another call. Catherine Araujo reported that her son, Robert Allen Goodlett, age 33, had left her home on July 22nd and not returned. She attempted to report him missing the next day, but when police wouldn't take the report, she called the private investigator. Goodlett was also gay and frequented some of the same clubs as Broussard. Vandegrift and his associate, Bill Hillsley, interviewed the bar's patrons. They were told that Goodlett was last seen leaving a bar called Our Place with a man in a light blue car that sported Ohio plates. Vandegrift then learned that Detective Mary Wilson with the Indianapolis police was working on several similar disappearances beginning in 1993. Vandegrift and Wilson compared notes and discovered that all the men who disappeared were gay and similar in age and appearance. They began to suspect that they might have a serial killer working in the area. Just after Goodlett went missing, Stephen Hale, age 26, also disappeared. The investigation was stalled since there was no clearly identified suspect linked to the disappearances and no crime scene or bodies from which to gather evidence. They enlisted the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit to put together a profile of the most likely perpetrator. The profiler told the investigators that they should be looking for a white male in his mid-40s who was most likely bisexual and possessed an above-average intelligence. The detectives continued working the case, but there wasn't much to go on. Then in August, just weeks after Vandergriff began his investigation, a man came forward with information. Mark Goodyear also frequented the gay clubs in Indianapolis and was friends with Roger Goodlett. He told Vandergriff that he'd encountered a man in the 501 Club who had been scrutinizing the missing persons flyer about Goodlett's disappearance. Something about the way he was looking at it made him curious, and he struck up a conversation with him. The man was somewhat familiar to Mark. He'd seen him at other gay bars around town, but hadn't met him and didn't know his name. The tall, thin, quiet man introduced himself as Brian Smart. Mark had often noticed that Brian seemed uncomfortable whenever he'd observed him at one gay bar or another. That wasn't too unusual, he thought. Some gay men kept their sexuality a secret from friends, co-workers, and even family, and they could be nervous when out in public. Mark figured this might be Brian's issue. But there was something else about him, something that made Mark suspect that Brian Smart might know something about his missing friend. He decided to try and get him to talk, but Brian steered the conversation away from Goodlett's disappearance. He told Mark that he was a landscape artist from Ohio, and was living in a big house outside of town, acting as its caretaker. He explained that it was largely empty since the new owners had not yet moved in. He told Mark it had a pool, and invited him over for some drinks and a swim. Mark agreed. Brian drove Mark north and away from the city in a gray Buick with Ohio license plates. They reached an affluent area with horse stables, long winding driveways, and large homes surrounded by woods. As they left the main road and onto the road that led up to the house, Mark was able to glimpse a sign at the entrance. All he could make out was the word farm. They entered a large, dark, Tudor-styled home through a garage. The inside of the home was a bit chaotic, with boxes piled up everywhere and mismatched furnishings. Brian led Mark to a staircase and turned on a light. He told him the indoor pool and bar were located downstairs. Mark reluctantly followed him. 
They reached the bottom, and there was a large lap pool and wet bar. But what kind of freaked Mark out were the mannequins. Most were clothed and placed in various positions around the room. This is really weird, he thought. He asked his host about them, and Brian explained that he lived there alone, and, quote, they gave him company. Brian offered Mark a drink, which he declined. Brian then excused himself, and when he returned, he seemed more talkative and animated. Mark recognized the behavior and was pretty certain that Brian had taken some drug, most likely cocaine. He invited Mark to swim, so he undressed and began doing laps in the pool. Brian continued to talk to Mark as he swam. He then told Mark about a neat trick he'd learned. Picking up the plastic pool hose, he began to describe sexual asphyxia, or cutting off the air supply while masturbating in order to enhance the experience. Brian asked Mark to wrap the hose around his throat and tighten it while he lay on a couch and masturbated. Mark complied. Then Brian wanted Mark to experience it. Mark became even more convinced that Brian may have killed his friend Roger Goodlett, but he thought the only way to find out what had happened to him was to comply. Okay, does that sound crazy to you, or is that just me? He was either very brave or very foolish. Mark allowed Brian to place the hose around his throat and watched as he began to tighten it, observing the intense anticipation and pleasure in Brian's eyes as he did so. To Mark, it seemed like he'd done this many times before. As Brian began to squeeze his throat tighter, Mark pretended to pass out. Brian loosened his grip. He called to Mark and then began to shake him. Mark opened his eyes and smiled at Brian, as if he just played a practical joke. Brian became angry. You scared the shit out of me, he yelled. You know you can die doing this? There have been accidents. After spending some time at the house, Mark finally convinced Brian to drive him back to Indianapolis. As he dropped him at the club, he told Mark that he'd been a good sport, a fun playmate. He asked him to meet him again the following Wednesday. Mark told Vandegrift about his encounter with Brian Smart, but unfortunately couldn't tell him exactly where the house was located. He thought it was probably in Carmel or Westfield, but it could have been one of over a hundred estates in that area. They thought their best bet was to stake out the 501 Club, where Brian had planned to meet Mark for another date the following week. But to their disappointment, Brian didn't show up. Detective Mary Wilson asked Mark to keep an eye out for Brian Smart, and if he showed up again, to make sure to get a license plate number. Months passed, with no sightings of Brian Smart. Okay, dear listeners, you're all pretty sharp cookies, so I'm sure you've figured this out by now. The house that Mark Goodyear visited in the summer of 1994 was Fox Hollow Farm, and Brian Smart was in reality Herb Baumeister. Baumeister was living a double life. During the week, he was a devoted husband and loving father and a successful business owner. On the weekends and weeks when his family was away at the lake house, Baumeister cruised the gay bars of downtown Indianapolis, seeking out young men to bring back to Fox Hollow Farm, where they met their demise. Most of them were likely strangled in the pool room and drowned. Baumeister's double life was taking its toll on him. He became increasingly short with his employees. Perhaps his urge to commit more lust killings was occurring more frequently. The Save-A-Lot employees would later say he was often short-tempered and had angry outbursts over the slightest problems. 
He also disappeared for hours at a time from the workplace, and as a result, the stores suffered. They were no longer as clean, organized, or well-stocked as they'd once been, and business began to lag. His debts began to pile up, and he and Julie had more arguments about money. Julie began to threaten divorce, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. The kids loved their dad, and she didn't want to separate them from him, so she continued to hold on to the last shreds of her marriage. Herb was increasingly absent, and even when he was home, he seemed to be lost in his own thoughts. Then in the fall of 1994, 13-year-old Eric was playing with a friend in the woods behind their house and came upon a strange sight. He called his mother, and she followed him to a spot just beyond the tree line. There, they discovered an almost complete human skeleton lying half-buried among the leaves. When Herb came home, she told him about the skeleton. He told her that he'd been cleaning out the garage and came upon an old dissecting skeleton that had belonged to his father. The doctor had used it for training purposes at the hospital, and it had been stored in the garage. When he'd found it among some other stored items there, he said, he felt it would be more respectful to bury it rather than toss it in a trash bag. Julie, appeased, asked no more about it. But one day, her curiosity returned, and she went back into the woods where the skeleton had been found. It was gone. The investigation into the disappeared men had stalled. The only lead the investigators had, Goodyear's account of meeting Brian Smart, had gone nowhere when Smart could not be found. On April 1, 1995, another man went missing. This time, it was 46-year-old Michael Kiern. In August, Jerry Williams Comer, age 35, also disappeared from Indianapolis. His car was later found parked at a shopping mall. Now 10 men were missing and presumed dead. Then on August 29, 1995, Herb Baumeister, a.k.a. Brian Smart, showed up to the Varsity Lounge where Mark Goodyear happened to be having a drink. Trying to remain calm, Mark greeted Brian and chatted with him for a while. Before Brian left, Mark was able to get the license plate number of the vehicle he was driving, this time a truck. He called Detective Mary Wilson with the information. The detective ran the plates and discovered that the registered owner was listed as Herbert Baumeister of Westville, Indiana. His address belonged to a home called Fox Hollow Farm, and property records showed that there was an indoor swimming pool in the basement, just as Goodyear had described. Wilson also learned that Baumeister was a married man with children and was the proprietor of a chain of thrift stores in Indianapolis. The detective wanted to get a search warrant for the home, but because it was located out of her jurisdiction, she had to appeal to the police in Hamilton County, where Fox Hollow Farm was located. However, they declined to investigate the matter. They needed more to go on before they would even think of interviewing her suspect. Wilson continued to gather evidence against Baumeister. He was surveilled for weeks, but nothing appeared out of the ordinary. Wilson finally decided to confront him face to face. On November 1st, Mary Wilson and another detective attempted to question Baumeister, showing up at a Save-A-Lot store and telling him straight away that they were investigating the disappearance of several men. They told him he'd been identified as a possible suspect and that they needed to search his house. Herb Baumeister was a strange man, Mary Wilson thought. 
He was very nervous and, well, weird. But he refused to answer questions or cooperate with the search, telling her if she had any further questions to contact his lawyer. Wilson then decided to appeal to Julie. A few days later, they arrived at the door of the Baumeister home. By this time, Herb had already told his wife a story, saying that he had been falsely accused of theft, and should the police contact her, under no circumstances, should she agree to a search. When Wilson talked to Julie and told her the true reason they were there, she was shocked, but still refused to allow them to search her home. But things continued to unravel for the Baumeisters. In May, the Children's Bureau, citing flagging sales at Save-A-Lot, announced they were terminating their contract with the store. Baumeister was increasingly stressed, and he and Julie fought endlessly about money. Herb had always been the one controlling their finances, but now Julie began to voice her displeasure with his decisions. Herb would fly into a rage and then disappear for hours. He and Julie rarely spoke now. Finally, Julie decided she'd had enough and filed for divorce. Now she began to think about the skeleton in the woods and her husband's quick explanation for it. Mary Wilson had told her that Herb was a suspect in a homosexual homicide case but Julie needed the detective to explain what that even meant. Wilson told Julie that her husband had been seen by several witnesses at gay bars in Indianapolis. At first, Julie thought there must be a big mistake. But the more she thought about it, the more she wondered. She began calling Mary Wilson with questions, and the detective answered her patiently and honestly. In June, after Julie filed for divorce, she told her attorney, Bill Wendig, about the discovery of the skeleton. He urged her to tell the detective. Still, she wavered. Then Baumeister closed one of the stores for good and unexpectedly took their son Eric with him on an unplanned vacation to the lake. He didn't tell Julie before they left town, and she grew worried. She thought about the skeleton, about the detective's suspicions about her husband, and about how stressed and angry Herb had been. Concerned for Herb's mental state, and the safety of her child, she decided to have the police find her husband and bring Eric home. The detective told her that they needed cause to bring in her husband and asked her if she would agree to a search of the home now. Not only was she willing, but she led the searchers to the area where the skeleton had been discovered. Within minutes of entering the wooded area, they found a bone about a foot long. Taking a closer look around it, they realized they were seeing dozens of bone fragments, many of them charred. They quickly called out the evidence team to photograph and collect what they suspected were human bones. The bones were examined by a forensic anthropologist at the University of Indiana. He confirmed that they were human, that they were from a recently deceased person or persons, and that they had been burned. Authorities first sought to find Baumeister and make sure that his son Eric was in no danger. Because the couple was in the middle of divorce proceedings, Julie had a judge draw up custody papers to have her son return to her. Police arrived at the Lake Wawasee house with the papers, and Baumeister, thinking this was just another divorce action by his soon-to-be ex-wife, handed over the boy with no objection. Meanwhile, the search of the property continued. Hundreds of bone fragments had been found just beyond the Baumeister's backyard. They entered the house to corroborate Mark Goodyear's account of events a year earlier, as well as to search for more evidence. They found the basement pool, the mannequins, and then discovered a hidden video camera. 
they wondered if Baumeister might have used it to videotape his crimes. However, the search did not turn up any tapes. But it did turn up bones of suspected victims, and hundreds of them. There were two areas where the bones were concentrated on the property. Just beyond the backyard, there appeared to be a sizable burn pit where large quantities of burnt bone fragments were found. They seemed to have been brought to that location, pulverized into small pieces, and then burned under leaves and garbage. Then on the far side of a neighboring property's drainage ditch, there was another area with larger, more intact bones, indicating a possibility that entire bodies, or just the bigger bones that could not be broken down into smaller pieces, were dragged out and left there. It was further away from the Baumeister's property, and nearby, several empty cans of Miller Genuine Draft Beer were found, Herb Baumeister's favorite drink. Within a couple of days, 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments were found on the property. It would take months to determine how many victims had been discovered and identify them. By the time police returned to arrest Herb Baumeister for suspicion of murder, he'd disappeared. A manhunt began in the state of Indiana for the suspected serial killer. On June 29th, five days after the first bones were found, Herb Baumeister's brother Brad called detectives to inform him that he'd received a call from his brother. On June 28th, the day before, Herb had called from Michigan saying that he was on a business trip and needed money. Brad sent the cash, but this was before he'd heard about the discovery at Fox Hollow Farm. Then after speaking to the detective, Brad received another call. This time, Herb told him that he was in Port Huron. Brad informed Herb that the police had been in touch and wanted to speak with him. Herb hung up and did not call again. Shortly after speaking to his brother, Herb Baumeister crossed into Canada. He arrived in Sarnia on June 30th, where he remained for a couple of days. He then drove along the Lake Huron shoreline to arrive at Grand Bend, Ontario. On July 2nd, he was sleeping in his car when he was approached by a Canadian trooper. Looking inside, she noticed luggage and a pile of videotapes on the back seat. Herb explained that he was a tourist and had become sleepy on his drive and decided to pull over to rest. The trooper didn't notice anything out of the ordinary and continued on her way. The following evening... Herb Baumeister parked his gray Buick in Pinery Park overlooking the lake, picked up a revolver, and shot himself in the forehead. He died instantly. He left behind a three-page suicide note in which he cited his failing marriage, his failed business, and money problems as a reason for his decision to end his own life. He did not mention the missing men or confess to any murders. When a search was conducted of the car, no videotapes were found. Some speculate that he may have indeed videotaped the murders of the young men he'd brought to the pool house. Serial killers often keep trophies from their victims, and the videotapes may have served this purpose for Baumeister. If that was the case, and he brought them with him, as the trooper's observation suggests, then his last act may have been to dump them in the lake, never to be discovered. The final words written in Baumeister's suicide note were, I'm going to eat a peanut butter sandwich now and go to sleep. His body was found days later. In the end, 
authorities were able to positively identify eight victims from the remains found on Fox Hollow Farm. Johnny Bayer, Ellen Wayne Brassard, Roger Allen Goodlett, Richard Hamilton, Stephen Hale, Jeff Allen Jones, Michael Kiern, and Manuel Resendez. There were many more bone fragments that led investigators to believe that there may have been as many as 20 or more victims' bodies dumped in the woods. Investigators also determined that Julie Baumeister had been 100 miles away from Fox Hollow Farm at the time each one of the men went missing. She was cleared of any suspicion of the murders or knowledge of them. She left Fox Hollow Farm soon after the discovery of the crimes committed there and returned with her children to Indianapolis. But her Baumeister would come under suspicion for even more murders and today is believed to also have been responsible for a series of murders along the Interstate 70 corridor. Virgil Vandegrift made a connection between the disappearances in Indianapolis and a series of strangling murders of gay men between 1980 and 1990. He took this information to David Lindloff, who was heading the I-70 killer case, to compare notes. Several gay men were found strangled and dumped along Interstate 70 in the state of Ohio. Her Baumeister, according to his wife, made frequent business trips to Ohio during the late 1980s. Witnesses had provided a description of the man suspected of being the I-70 killer, and the composite sketch was later compared to pictures of Herbert Baumeister. There was a clear resemblance. The M.O., Death by Strangulation, was the same as believed to have been the cause of death of the Fox Hollow Farms victims. The victims were also similar in description. Most were single gay men between 20 and 40 years of age. Finally, no more bodies were found dumped along I-70 after Baumeister purchased Fox Hollow Farm in 1991, a much more secluded place to hide his grisly handiwork. Fox Hollow Farm continued to be a source of interest for people far and wide. They came to see the infamous house and grounds that had been both home to a serial killer and a murder site. Julie Baumeister had put the house on the market and moved back to Indianapolis and the original home she'd shared with her husband as a young bride. Fox Hollow Farm stood empty for some time. Then in 2009, Rob and Vicki Graves became its new owners. They realized soon after touring the property that this was the house owned by the serial killer, Herb Baumeister. But they felt the deal on such a gorgeous house was too good to pass up. Neither one of them was particularly superstitious, and they decided that they could live with the house's history. When their tenant, Joe LeBlanc, was offered the apartment on the second floor, he also had no problem with the fact that Indiana's most prolific serial killer had killed and disposed of his victims just beyond his doorstep. It was weird, sure, but he thought that the worst that could happen was that Looky Loos might trespass on the property in their attempt to catch a glimpse of the infamous house. Besides, Rob Graves had told him that the apartment had been completely gutted and remodeled before he'd moved in. But before long, LeBlanc began experiencing strange events at Fox Hollow Farm. First, it was the knocking he continued to hear on his front door. It began to increase in frequency and intensity. Every time he'd open the door, no one was there. One night, he tried another tactic when the knocking began again. This time, instead of opening the door, LeBlanc called out, 
Who's there? The knocking grew louder and more insistent. And when he opened the door, the door knocker was sticking straight out in midair. Spooked now, LeBlanc closed and locked the door. But then the knob on the door began to move, as if someone were trying to get into the apartment. Finally, it stopped. But then suddenly, the door burst open, sending wood chips from the doorframe flying into the room. Now LeBlanc was convinced there must be someone playing tricks on him, and he ran towards the door to confront the culprit. He stopped in his tracks when he was met by a young man in soaking wet clothes. The man seemed to be terrified and on the run for his life. He rushed past LeBlanc and into the apartment, and then simply disappeared. This was all too much. LeBlanc approached his landlords to let them know what he'd seen. Vicky Graves shared her account of seeing the red-shirted man walking, or floating, near the woods. At first, she thought it was a trespasser come to see the serial killer's home, but became convinced that it was an otherworldly apparition due to its lack of legs and how it simply dissolved into thin air. LeBlanc had also seen a man with a red shirt moving quickly on the property while he was walking his dog, Fred. The man had reached the woods, but by the time he and Fred could catch up, he was gone. Not long after this sighting, LeBlanc saw the red-shirted man again. This time, the off-leash Fred ran after the figure. LeBlanc chased the dog and ended up face-to-face with the man, but he then vanished before his eyes. LeBlanc caught up with Fred in the woods, where the dog had stopped and was standing still. He looked down and found a large bone. It turned out to be a human femur bone. The Graves contacted the police with the find, and the police told them that, unfortunately, they may be finding bones on the property for some time to come. While thousands of bones had been discovered and eight victims identified, they suspected that there may be many more unknown victims buried on the property. The femur bone was analyzed, but it could not be linked to any of the known victims and has not yet been identified. LeBlanc also began to feel a presence in the kitchen and hear footsteps in his apartment when he was alone. One day, he heard a sound like metal scraping on metal and found a kitchen knife sitting on the kitchen counter. Just above it, on the kitchen wall, were cuts in the wood that he had not observed before. But the most disturbing incident happened in the pool house, the place that it's believed Baumeister killed most of his victims. LeBlanc invited a friend over to swim in the pool. His friend had heard all the accounts of the ghostly sightings, but he was skeptical. He was more prone to believe that his friend's imagination was just running wild in response to knowing about the murders on the property. As LeBlanc was swimming in the pool, he felt someone touch him from behind, and then he was pulled underwater. His friend watched as LeBlanc's eyes grew wide. He could see the terror and knew he wasn't playing a prank. LeBlanc would later describe the feeling of being choked. He began clawing at unseen hands around his throat, cutting off his oxygen supply. Suddenly, it stopped and he could breathe again. He and his friend quickly got out of the water and hightailed it out of the pool room. Rob Graves began to grow curious. In the over 25 years he'd been married to Vicky, he had never heard her mention ghosts or spirits or anything paranormal at all. Now, when she told him she saw the ghostly man in the woods multiple times and felt a presence at others, he decided to see what he could learn about who or what they were sharing their home with. 
he contacted paranormal investigators to help identify whatever might be going on at Fox Hollow Farm. Over the next couple of years, several took him up on his offer. But first, Joe LeBlanc created his own experiment. He'd seen shows on television where people investigated hauntings and had decided to try and record the noises he was hearing in his apartment. He turned off all of their electronics and anything that could make noise and began recording with his computer. He felt silly doing it, but he began to try and communicate with the spirit or ghost or whatever it was he'd experienced. When he asked out loud who had been hanging out in the kitchen, he heard nothing. But when he played back the recording, he could clearly hear a voice answer, the married one. None of the men Baumeister was suspected of killing had been married. Now, LeBlanc believed the ghostly presence might be Baumeister himself. Paranormal investigators who came to Fox Hollow Farm all said that there was definitely paranormal activity taking place on the property. Photographs and videotapes picked up ghostly apparitions, and many voices and sounds were heard on specialized audio recording equipment. Many people, both experts and laypeople, said they felt a strange presence in a few different areas on the property. The pool room, LeBlanc's apartment, and the area in the woods where remains had been found. It was widely believed by many of these investigators that there were several spirits haunting the property. Some were victims of Baumeister's, the man who continually knocked on LeBlanc's door and who was seen soaking wet and running terrified through the apartment was one such soul. It was believed the spirit was reliving the last terror he'd experienced, trying to flee his murderer. The man in the red shirt, who was seen walking into the woods by both Joe LeBlanc and Vicky Graves, and who'd led LeBlanc's dog to the femur bone, was never seen again after the bone was discovered and turned over to the police. Was this a victim who couldn't rest in peace until his remains had been found? And something I just thought of. The man had no legs, and the bone that was found was a leg bone. The thing responsible for trying to choke and drown LeBlanc in the pool was thought to be the ghost of Herb Baumeister. Did the serial killer return to the scene of his crimes to try and claim more victims? The disembodied voice Joe LeBlanc picked up on his recording is also believed to be the killer. Her Baumeister, as far as anyone knows, was the only married man who'd been on the property and may be haunting the place. Much of the paranormal activity began after LeBlanc moved into the second-floor apartment. Psychic mediums told the Graves that because their tenant was a young single male, a similar description to the victims found at Fox Hollow Farm, this may have drawn the ghost of the serial killer back to his killing grounds. Many paranormal investigation shows have been shot at Fox Hollow Farm over the years. It is now commonly known as the most haunted house in Indiana. You can see some of these investigations on shows including Paranormal Witness and Ghost Adventures. In 2011, a documentary was released titled The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm, in which no fewer than nine paranormal investigators, demonologists, and psychic mediums conducted their own experiments. You can also see Detective Mary Wilson and private investigator Virgil Vandegrift discuss the murder investigation on this documentary. Rob and Vicki Graves still own the home and live on the property. But if you want to check it out for yourself and draw your own conclusions about hauntings on the property, ghost tours of Fox Hollow Farm are conducted by the company History and Hauntings Tours.
For about 90 bucks, you can go on a ghost hunt inside the walls of Fox Hollow Farm. But unfortunately, tickets for this month's tour are already sold out. It's a very popular place. You could say that people are dying to get in. And that's the most inappropriate joke I'll ever share on this podcast. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music for the show was composed by Cesare Gray. For more of his music, check out Eden Sphere Band on Facebook. There's a link in the show notes. Until next time, be good to one another. you know and trust is now angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember angie's list is now angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at angie.com that's a-n-g-i or download the app today Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.